Welcome to the All About Alts podcast, where we explore the world of alternative investing to help you find financial independence. Join our host, Newview Trust's president, Jason DeBono, as he covers a variety of topics with different guest speakers to discuss tax and alternative investing strategies. It is never too late to start taking control of your financial future, and we are so excited for you to be joining us for this opportunity to hear from some of the best in the business. Welcome to the All About Alts podcast. I am Jason DeBono, your host today. And we got a really exciting topic, something that comes up a lot. It's I put it in the category of topics that everybody should know and spend a lot of time on, but nobody really talks about till they have to. And that is beneficiary planning, inherited retirement accounts, selecting beneficiaries, the why, the how, and mechanics of how to manage that. And so we're going to walk through that today. And we're going to hopefully end this podcast with a clear understanding of a couple of key points. Number one, who are your beneficiaries? What does that actually mean? And why did you or should you have selected them? Number two, what are the tax implications that you can get out in front of from a planning standpoint for your beneficiaries? And then number three, what are the discussions and conversations you should be having with your beneficiaries about money? And I think sometimes it's taboo or it's considered really bad if we have to sit down at the family dinner table and talk about money. But I think once you hear some of the things we've seen and some of the things we're going to talk about, you'll quickly realize maybe that's the best discussion you could have at dinner in the next night after listening to this. So we're going to dig right in and we're going to talk a little bit about IRAs as a whole and retirement accounts. And we'll just start there. So when we talk about retirement accounts, these are accounts that are different types of money than your personal accounts. So if you go out and buy a house or you go out and put money into a bank account, you go out and buy some stocks, all of those are personal assets and they're all effectively treated the same. There is no designated beneficiary for any of those assets. That money is simply your money and it's treated in the probate process or through your will or any estate planning that you've done. IRAs, Retirement accounts, 401ks, 403bs, 457s are treated differently. These accounts all have designated beneficiaries that will supersede anything that may be in your will or through probate. Now, if you're creating trusts, your trust can, in effect, make decisions for your retirement accounts, but it has to be set up properly. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as we kind of drill down through this. So I just want to draw a quick distinction to say, if you have retirement money and you're not thinking about what happens to that money, once you do pass away, then you need to pause and reflect on what you may want to do differently going forward. If you're not clear, if you're not certain, if you haven't changed anything recently, or you've had life events and you haven't gone back and looked and evaluated what that looks like, take a hard look at those accounts because the way that you designate them today is going to be what will happen with that money upon passing away. So I'll share a quick story. I don't know if it's a fable or an old folklore, but the story goes, there was a couple that was married 50 plus years. Wife was a teacher in the school system for you know however long, we'll call it 50 years. She passes away with over a million dollars of money saved in her retirement account through the school system. And that money was awarded to the sister. Now you're sitting here saying, well, why did it go to the sister? They were married 50 years. It's crystal clear. The husband was the inheritance. However, she set up the account when she got into teaching before she had met her husband of 50 years. She designated the sister as her beneficiary and never changed it over the 50-year course of their marriage. As a result, upon death, the beneficiary form 
that they had on file stated the sister and there was nothing that the husband could provide other than a 50 years of a great marriage that would actually cause the state to award the funds to the individual or the husband. So whether or not you kind of look at that as an example, or maybe it's an extreme, it's the reality. So we're going to start by beneficiary designation. Now, when we look at these accounts, every one of them should have at least one beneficiary designated. Now, we're going to talk about what beneficiaries mean and what are the differences between them. But let's start at a very high level with a beneficiary is the person that is designated to receive the funds upon your passing. Now, what the rules and guidelines are for each beneficiary may differ, but let's just start with that very simple description. When it comes to designating beneficiaries, you have a couple of options. The first is a primary and contingent beneficiary designation. A primary beneficiary is the one that receives the funds first. Contingent beneficiaries only receive the money if the primary beneficiaries are also deceased. So if you name three primary beneficiaries and split it evenly amongst them, and all three of the primary beneficiaries are alive upon your passing, they would receive the money pro rata, however you designated that out. In the event that two of the three primary beneficiaries were also deceased, then the lone remaining primary beneficiary would receive 100% of the funds because they would receive all available funds since there were no other primaries. Your contingent beneficiaries will only receive the money if 100% of the primary beneficiary ownership has also been deceased. So it's really important that you understand that relationship because if your desire and goal is to pass it down through generations based on people passing away, you want to be very careful using a primary and contingent relationship or you just want to make sure that you update it regularly. So for example, if I left money, let's just say to two friends and those two friends, I left it primary beneficiary 50-50 and I wanted it to go to someone, let's say one of those friends passed away before me. If I do nothing, it will all 100% go to the remaining friend. But if I wanted to move it to other parties or maybe the children of that particular friend, then I would want to do so by renaming my beneficiaries. So primary and contingent relationships just mean that you have someone or a group of someones that are first in line. And then you have a group of people that are there in the event that there are no surviving primary beneficiaries. The second type of designation that you can make for beneficiaries is persterpes, a Latin term. Persterpes means that the money follows the beneficiaries down the lineage or down probate. So for example, if I were to name those same two friends as 50-50 beneficiaries, and when I passed away, one of them had also predeceased me, their 50% share would now be accessible or available to their heirs. So it creates this line that draws down the lineage or draws down the relationship of each beneficiary. So I don't ever have to go back and change my beneficiaries if I wanted to go to friend A or their heirs or friend B or their heirs. The nice thing about persterpes is that the money will follow the family tree. The drawback to persterpes is you may not know what that looks like at the time of designation, right? You don't know who may predecease you. You don't know the relationship so of what probate may afford. So you just want to be mindful of that. Whether you choose primary contingent or whether you choose persterpes, any of these can and should be reviewed and updated annually. They should also be reviewed and updated based on any life event. 
a marriage, a divorce, the birth of a child, the passing of someone that's on your beneficiary designation list, any and all of the above would warrant a full review of each of those accounts. The last thing that you want is for something to happen to you and those funds to end up maybe in the place that you didn't actually designate them. So when we talk about beneficiaries, it's hard because we're talking about people dying and no one ever wants to actually have that discussion, but it is a reality of life. And the sooner that we kind of accept and acknowledge that if we just make the decisions on a regular basis, not with emotion, but with clear understanding of our desires, then we can make sure that that money will always go to the rightful place. I can tell you in the 18 years I've been on the custodial side of a retirement account custodian, I have seen numerous cases and numerous times where there is a lot of fighting over money because either it wasn't clear, which means you end up with a lot of legal bills and a lot of expense and trying to sort it all out, or it is clear, but it may not match the intentions of what that IRA owner wanted. Unfortunately, if there's a name on a beneficiary and it's crystal clear, there's nothing that you can do about it after the fact. So it is not a goal and desire to overly harp on all the things that can go wrong with beneficiary designations, but it's a desire to help everyone understand the value in understanding who their beneficiaries are and looking and reviewing that on a regular basis. So hopefully that sheds a little bit of light. If you're not sure if you have a primary beneficiary, contingent beneficiary relationship or persterpes, make sure you take a look at that because that is a designation that would be made at the time of opening the account. If you have persterpes, just remember the beneficiary will follow down the lineage and will follow through probate and to the heirs of who you designated it to. If you do not have a persterpes designation, then the money will go to whoever's written down in the primary contingent based on who's still alive at the time, and it will get split based on the prorated amounts that you define or the recalculated amounts if one of the primaries, in this case, has predeceased you. That money will then be prorated moved over into any remaining beneficiaries. So it can be a little bit confusing. We're certainly here to kind of walk you through that. But what we can't do is give you guidance on who your beneficiary should be or some of the legal aspects that are associated with that. So that's key point number one is, are we designating the right beneficiaries? Are we reviewing it? Do we understand what happens when? And are we making sure that we've got the right type of designation associated with our beneficiaries? The second key point that we want to talk about and in this kind of estate planning beneficiary designation realm is about taxes. Now, when you set up your IRA account or retirement account, you are typically making a tax election at that point. You can choose to pay the tax up front. That's a Roth account, right? Whether that's a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k or now post-Secure Act 2.0, a Roth SEP or simple contribution, which is really cool. If you're not familiar with that, certainly go take a look. If you make a pre-tax designation, it means that you're deferring the taxes and you're willing to pay tax as you withdraw it. Now, just understand that what we're talking about today is the likelihood that the withdrawal will not come from you as the IRA owner. It will come from your designated beneficiaries. And as a result, we want to start thinking about some of the tax implications that we can start pre-planning ahead of that passing, right? Now, I hope everybody lives a long, healthy life and spends everything in their retirement account. But the reality is there will be people listening today that will pass their IRAs down with money in there. And that may be a good thing or it it may be unfortunate. But in either case, pre-planning and planning as best as we can for that life event is critical. And it's critical for our beneficiaries to understand as well. 
typically in a retirement account, the tax treatment that you designated inside of your IRA when you established it and contributed to it will follow through down to your beneficiaries. So if you have a Roth account and you've paid all the tax up front, your beneficiaries will inherit a Roth account and they will be able to withdraw that money without any tax implications, assuming that some of the considerations required of a Roth are already met. If those accounts that are passed are pre-tax, that means that your beneficiaries will inherit the tax obligation as they withdraw it. And so make sure, you know, as you're thinking through that, you're kind of giving good consideration to what the tax treatment of that money is. So a couple of things to take into consideration. One is tax planning. Now, depending on where you are from an age standpoint, I always advocate people to move into a Roth account. It is one of those accounts that if you can get your money in there, great. It's not a matter of if you should, it's when you should. And the when may not show up in your lifetime, but you need to be looking for it on an annual basis. So when we say it's about when, not an if, then what we're talking about is how do we take money that we've already put away and designated to be taxed at withdrawal and convert through a Roth conversion that money into a Roth IRA so that from today forward, it grows tax-free. Now, the benefit of doing that is that we create that tax-free growth from today all the way through not just my lifetime of that IRA, but another 10-year window based on my beneficiaries receiving that account, assuming I'm going to not spend it all. The second thing about a Roth is that it creates a little bit of a drawback, which is we're going to have to go pay the tax. This is where tax strategy and tax planning come in. People pay the tax for a variety of reasons. One, they may pay the tax because they're flush with cash and they're willing to just burn the cash today to get the tax bill out of the way for long-term growth tax-free. The second reason is they may have something in their personal situation that creates a window of opportunity. They may have an investment that's given them a big tax loss that they can use to offset. They may have lower income than they normally have for whatever reason. Maybe they're self-employed and their business didn't perform as well. And so they have less taxable income. And so that Roth conversion can put them in a lower tax bracket than historical conversions would have been. Lastly, people sometimes just are willing to convert from a tax planning standpoint. They recognize that the growth of that money in a tax-free environment may be beneficial or be better off than to leave it in a tax-deferred environment. So maybe there's an investment that they believe is going to generate a very healthy return or anything along those lines. So we're not here to talk specifically about Roth conversions, but we are here to talk about why beneficiary designations may impact a Roth conversion. So when we talk about Roth IRAs, one of the biggest benefits to any IRA owner from a Roth standpoint is that there's 100% tax-free growth on those funds. So when you pass an IRA down and it's a Roth, the individual that inherits that is also going to see those same tax benefits. So that's something that we really want to make sure we're taking into consideration. So we are not tax advisors, but we encourage you, much like your beneficiary designations, to go back and take a look at your tax treatment on your retirement accounts on an annual basis. And if the window of opportunity arises to take some of that pre-tax money and convert it to a Roth, paying that tax bill may be painful today, but it may be easy for you to stomach or swallow because you know that the growth and longevity of that money in a tax-free environment will not just serve you well, but hopefully you'll have enough money amassed where it will also serve your beneficiaries well. So when we talk about Roth conversions, often overlooked is that component of how are we passing this down to our heirs? 
And are we giving them a tax tool right, to inherit as opposed to just giving them a taxable tool? Both are good because anytime you're passing money down to a generation, that's inheritance and that's a positive. But if we can make some small decisions along the way that make that inheritance a little bit easier to manage for those beneficiaries or allow them to keep all of the money because they're not having to pay tax on it, that's a win-win. The third key point I want to make sure that we drive home today is the idea of making sure your beneficiaries understand your investment philosophy. I see this all too often, right? An individual sets up an IRA with us, they go out and buy a property or they issue a loan or they invest into a private equity deal. And they do that and they're very successful and they grow a nice sizable IRA and then they pass away. And the beneficiaries will contact us and say, what the heck is this account? What the heck's in it? What the heck do we do with it? And what we've learned along the way is that the best beneficiaries are the ones that actually understand the investment philosophy. Now, they don't have to follow in the footsteps, but most alternative assets would have to be unwound or carried out to fruition for them to maximize the investment opportunity that was there when you made the deal. So for example, if you buy a piece of real estate today and your goal is to hold it for the long term and you pass away, depending on market conditions, it may or not be the best time for that beneficiary to sell that property. Yet, if they don't understand how real estate works and they don't understand how it works in an IRA and they really haven't been taught any of this, their inclination is simply going to be, how do I get money out of this? And they're going to liquidate it, probably at a fire sale. And if the conditions aren't great, they're not going to get the maximum value out of that deal that you saw when you made the investment. So it's really critical to sit down with your beneficiaries and help them understand what you own, right? So for me, if I'm sitting down with my wife or my kids, I want to let them know, hey, this is my retirement account. You guys are the designated beneficiaries. In the event that I pass away, here's how this works, right? Here's what's expected of you guys. Here's what's being created for you. So I don't want them to see a portfolio of assets that they don't know the first thing about. Again, I'm not trying to make them experts. I certainly hope that they want to learn and want to be further invested into some of these asset classes. But at a minimum, I want them to see this so that when they do you know, actually go to sort out the financial affairs upon my passing, that nothing comes as a surprise to them. And I can tell you all too often for many of the beneficiaries of our clients, it comes at a surprise. And so our team spends a lot of time telling them what's in the account and helping them understand at a high level what a self-directed account is, but we have no idea what was invested into. So if you've made deals and you've got a private equity investment or you've got loans, those things have terms and agreements and conditions that we're not privy to. So all we can do is provide what information is in the documents and let the beneficiary of those funds make the best decision. So Key point number three, and just a takeaway here, make sure that you're sitting down with your beneficiaries and giving them a clear explanation of what you have. If you're concerned about talking to them in dollars and cents, leave the dollars and cents out of it. Hey, don't worry about how much money's in this account. Just know that there are two notes and one private equity deal and a piece of real estate. And what does it mean? This is what real estate means, and this is what private equity means, and this is what notes mean. Have those discussions regularly. Bring them to our educational classes. Push them to our YouTube channel. Get them to like, share, and subscribe to the All About Alts podcast. Make them comfortable and familiar with how these accounts work. Again, not so that you can expect them to invest in what you have, 
But you do want them to carry out the investments in the account to maximize the value of the investments that you've made. So to recap the first part of the segment today, we've talked about understanding beneficiary designation, how they work, the differences between primary contingent and persterpes, and the why behind that. So make sure that you're doubling down on your beneficiaries, that you understand who and what and how has been designated, and you should be checking that regularly and making changes when applicable. We talked about taxes, right? We think about taxes as what am I going to owe, but what about thinking about taxes through the lens of our beneficiaries? If we're getting later in life, if we don't think we're going to spend all the money in our accounts, now's the time to start making tax decisions, not just for us, but also for our beneficiaries. The third thing is having your beneficiaries understand your investment philosophy and strategy within your retirement accounts. Right? The worst thing that can happen is for someone to inherit your account and not know what to do with the money or not know what to do with the assets. So make sure you're having some of those high-level discussions on what's in the account, how they work, and the why behind it. Now we're going to kick over to our quirky questions of the day, which is always my favorite segment. And today I get to give myself the quirky question. So I'm looking forward to that. And then we're going to dive in a little bit in the second half of the show today around how do beneficiaries actually get the money? What does that look like? What are their roles and responsibilities? And we'll talk about some of the changes with the Secure 2.0 Act that came out that's provided some additional guidance and opportunities. So Without further ado, Miss Maggie, we will get our quirky questions of the day, and I'm going the envelope on the top. All right. So normally I read these out for our guests. Today I get to read them for myself, so this shall be fun. Here we go. Oh, question number one. What part of a kid's movie completely scarred you? I, you know, I think for me it was Pet Cemetery. You know, maybe I'm kind of aging myself, but Pet Cemetery was a movie that we watched when we were kids. And for those that haven't seen it, just be forewarned. It's a great movie, but it is very scary. It absolutely scarred me. I still have trouble looking at pets in the same light. But if you haven't seen Pet Cemetery yet, that one absolutely scared me. I think I could make a case for Children of the Corn as well. But being in Florida, we don't really see a whole lot of cornfields, but definitely another one to, uh, to be mindful of. Oh, man. This one's almost too easy for me. What's the funniest thing you've ever heard a child say? Now, I don't know. I've mentioned on the shows, but we have two kids, one boy, one girl. A boy is the older one. I could probably go down and recite a whole lot of funny things that the kids have said. But if I've got to dial down and think about just one thing that was the funniest, well, I'll skip that one. I, I think it's the first time I heard my son use profanity at a young age, but this is one that is stumping me a bit in terms of pinpointing just one, but give me a second here. So I think I'll point out, and it was fairly recent, so our daughter is three. We refer to her as a three-nager. God bless her. She's an amazing child, but she is so vibrant with personality and the stuff that comes out of her mouth. But we were in a shopping cart in Publix or one of the retail stores, and a noise was made that sounded like someone had passed gas. And as loud as could be from the cart of the shopping cart at a retail store, my daughter says, Dad, did you fart? And 
I don't know why or how, but I couldn't respond because I was taken back by it. But it was quite embarrassing. There were people around that looked and no matter how I responded, I'm sure in the court of public opinion, I was guilty. So there you have it. Funniest thing I think I've ever heard a child say. Number three, serious question. Do you count your steps? The answer to this is very easy for me. No, I don't. I actually had a discussion at lunch with someone that does. And, you know, I just have never done it. I've got a smartwatch. I don't know how to utilize that function or tool. We've done some step challenges here in the office, and I've just never participated because I just can't seem to get over that hump. Part of it is I'd probably be embarrassed to see how few steps I take some days. So there you have it. No, I do not count my steps, and I have no intention to do so either. That wraps up our quirky questions. You know, I get to feel on the hot seat for a little bit, even though I get to read the questions to myself. But thank you for those of you that continue to submit those. You can do so by emailing our show producer, Maggie, with a Y at newviewtrust.com with a U. But we love this part of the show. Hopefully you guys too. Thanks for being good participants. So now let's get into the latter half of the show. And we're going to get a bit more technical here, and I'll try to keep it at a high level. But the rules around beneficiary receipt of funds has changed a little bit. It changed in the first SECURE Act, and it changed again in the second SECURE Act. And so the things we're going to talk about now are relatively new. I am far from an expert on any of these, but I will certainly do my best to make sure that I deliver at least enough information to help you go out and decide where or what to look for and do a little bit more digging, a little bit more research. So we talked about, you know, the importance of the planning piece of it. And let's assume that we did that. Let's now turn to, right, what happens actually mechanically when I pass away? So the first thing that's going to happen, and this is why we say make sure your beneficiaries are very well aware of what you have, because we don't know when any one of our thousands of clients has passed right? So typically we are provided information from the beneficiaries. So make sure that those individuals are aware that they're beneficiaries so that they can reach out to us in the event of your passing. As a result, we do require a death certificate. Naturally, we validate, right, that they are the rightful beneficiary. If there is any ambiguity, right, it is deferred off and it may end up in probate or it may end up with some legal proceedings. So make sure that there's no ambiguity when you establish your beneficiaries. But that is something that once it's clear, so if there's a primary beneficiary or two primary beneficiaries, we will then get the election from those individuals. So let's start with a spouse as a beneficiary. The spouse has the most flexibility when receiving a retirement account. The thing that a spouse can do that no other beneficiary can do is they can make that account their own. Now, when we say their own, it means they actually take your account, move it over to their own account, and they become the new owner. It works just like their own account. They'll operate it as their own account. Their age will not impact the actual taking of their account, but it will impact how it's treated going forward. So if they're in retired minimum distribution age, they'll be required to take minimum distributions, but it's all based on them, the IRA owner. Typically, a spouse beneficiary is the easiest, most efficient way to move the money and not have any complexities for the the one that inherits. However, a spouse can also elect to take the account as an inherited account. When a spouse receives the money as the inherited, they can take the money over their life expectancy. Now, there's some reasons that they may do that. Let's just assume that the spouse that receives the IRA is only 40 years old. They're not old enough to take the money out. 
if they take it into their own IRA, they'll be subject to any early withdrawal penalties because they're treated as the new IRA owner. If they're under 59 and a half, they may be subject to penalties. So what some spouses would do in that case, if they're under 59 and a half and maybe planned on pulling some of that money out, is they'll designate it as an inherited account and they'll actually be required to take withdrawals. Those required withdrawals no longer are subject to the penalty. Right? If they go beyond that, they will pay the penalty because they're taking more than they're forced to take out. So spouses can either take it as a designated inherited account over life expectancy, or they can move it simply into their own IRA and follow the guidelines. Just remember that the tax treatment of the IRA follows. So if it was a traditional, right, when I inherited it, I inherited it as a traditional. Now, if I want to make different tax elections down the road, those typically are not going to be an option for me right? That ship has already sailed. So we want to make sure that the IRA owner is making the right tax elections for not just themselves, but for their beneficiaries. The SECURE Act changed the way that beneficiary designations work from a recipient standpoint. Historically, non-spouse beneficiaries had a few different options, lump sum, five-year life expectancy. Now they've capped it for beneficiaries that are non-spouses, at 10 years. Now, there are a few exceptions to this, which we're going to touch on at the end. What that means is that if you designate a non-spouse beneficiary and they don't meet the exceptions, which is relatively narrow, then their account must be withdrawn over a 10-year period. That means that they have until December 31st of the 10th year of your passing to withdraw the money completely. Now, they can take it out bit by bit. They can take it out every other year, which is really nice. It created a lot of flexibility. But by the 10th year, it must be fully withdrawn. Now, this is, in my opinion, a great way for people to take the money out because it does a few things. If I want to take a lump sum, I can take a lump sum. There's nothing stopping me as long as it's withdrawn by the 10th year. There's nothing that says it can't be withdrawn in the first year. Now, from a tax planning standpoint and an investment strategy standpoint, I'm a big believer in keeping the money in the account as long as possible. Because if I withdraw it, I put it into a taxable state, or if I keep it in the account, I keep it in a tax advantage state, especially if it's a Roth. I want to keep that money growing tax-free as long as possible. So your inheritance right, should only be taking what they need out of the account. And that's something that comes with good education, right? If I'm going to leave my IRA to my kids, I want my kids to know this money is working really hard for them. And even though it may be attractive to go withdraw it and go buy something or spend it, it's even more attractive to let it grow and let it compound and then take it at the end and have way more money to buy way more things. But that's part of that educational process. But an inheritance has 10 years from the date of death at that December 31st of the 10th year to withdraw all the money. No penalty for withdrawal, but they will pay tax in accordance with their own income tax if it's pre-tax, and they reserve the right to take it tax-free if it's a Roth. So those are some things that you want to look at. If you inherit an IRA and it's pre-tax and you've only got that 10-year window, then you really want to take a look at your tax planning strategy over those 10 years because you can inherit a lot of taxes, especially if it's a sizable retirement account. So just some things that you want to be mindful of. Now, in the event that you have a designated beneficiary that meets the exception criteria, 
So I'm going to read from this list here. So forgive me for looking down, but this exception criteria means that they do not have to withdraw it within 10 years. They can take it over life expectancy. That's the IRA owner's spouse, which we've talked about. The IRA owner's minor child, right? With an asterisk, we're going to come back to. An individual who is not more than 10 years younger than the IRA owner. So if maybe a sibling leaves you their account, that may give you a window. Disabled as defined by the IRS or chronically ill as defined by the IRS. In any of those scenarios, those parties can elect to take it over their life expectancy. So for some of them, their life expectancy may be much longer than 10 years, which is why they'd want to choose that. Now, if it's a minor child, once they reach 18, they become subject to the 10-year rule. So if they receive the account at 12, at 18, they've got 10 years to withdraw it. Right. So that for from 12 to 18, they got life expectancy from 18 to 28. They're under the 10 year rule. So just some things to keep in mind. Again, it's some nuances. If you're not familiar with the secure 2.0, just give it a quick Google and there's plenty of information. I've done some content on that as well on secure 2.0 on this podcast. So you can go back and look for that show. That's a lot more detail about all of the changes of secure act. Not so much the changes just to the beneficiary piece, but take a look at that. It's really critical that you understand. So kind of to recap, right? Spouse beneficiaries have the right to take it as their own IRA, which gives them the freedom to treat it just like their money. Any non-spouse must take it as an inherited IRA. Spouse can elect an inherited IRA as well, but that's an election. Of all the parties that receive the money under an inherited account, the majority of them will have to withdraw the money within the year 10 of the 1231 of the date of death in that 10th year. They can take it in any increments that they want as long as it's fully distributed by year 10. If they meet one of the exceptions to be considered an eligible designated beneficiary, right? The spouse, the minor child, someone disabled, an individual not more than 10 years younger or chronically ill, then they have an additional election option, which is to take it over their life expectancy. Just remember, any life expectancy distributions will have an RMD annually. That's the amount that they will be forced to take out every year, whether they want to or not. Whereas in a 10-year rule, there is no RMD. It just has to be out by the end of the 10th year. Hopefully, that provides some guidance and understanding. I know you know it can be a lot to digest. Certainly, we do this every day, so it's a little bit easier for us to chat about. But you know, key takeaways, first half of the show is, are you managing your beneficiary designations correctly and through good education to those parties from a good tax planning strategy? Step two is, and the second part of the show is really all about what are the actual rules for withdrawals? How do they have to manage that money so that you can begin the education process with your beneficiaries so that they're under you know clear understanding of how these accounts work and how their distributions can and will work. The great news is if any of your beneficiaries have assets that may have a longer life than the 10 years that they'll have to withdraw them, they can always withdraw the asset at that 10th year. So for example, if they own a piece of property and their goal is to not sell it, at the end of year 10, when they have to, to meet you know, the withdrawal requirements of the 10-year rule, they can actually withdraw that property right out of the account. So the bottom line today, everybody, is very simple. Plan, plan, plan. Make sure you know who your beneficiaries are. Make sure they know they're a beneficiary. 
understand the guidelines, educate them, and you will find that you will maximize the potential, not just of your investments, but of the tax advantages, which is how the wealthy continue to drive wealth, or those that aren't wealthy continue to build and create wealth. So make sure that you're saving well, you're investing well, but make sure that you're not letting the government get their hands on that money or the attorneys or probate by simply not making some very simple elections along the way. Hopefully you got something good out of today's podcast. We absolutely love continuing to bring you guys content on how to to not just invest efficiently, but how to use good tax advantages to keep more of what you guys earn and more of what you invest into. And today is certainly a byproduct of that. So we continue to wish you guys all the best in your investment strategies and philosophies and hope that today sheds a little bit of light on a little bit longer planning from a beneficiary standpoint. If you are not actively subscribed to the podcast, please click the like, share, and subscribe button. Also, if you want to drop us a five-star review, we'd love to help share with others on the content that we're providing here and hopefully have them continue to join this community so we can continue to broaden our base of people that are investing wisely and using good tax-efficient strategies to keep it. So thanks so much, everybody, for joining us today, and we'll look forward to joining you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope the information within this podcast has given you the tools that you need to find your way to financial independence. We would love to partner with you on this journey. Text ALTS, that's A-L-T-S, to 407-708-1853 to learn more about how to get started today. Don't forget to follow us to make sure you don't miss a second of content, and we'll see you next week.